Greetings, this is Bob Ponderelli, co-host with Mike Sherrick of Into the Gap Radio, which airs Saturday afternoons at 1 o'clock Central on 1590 AM and 95.9 FM Chicago. This is the podcast version of our show where you'll get highlights of our most recent episode. We also do an Into the Gap unfiltered podcast, and I'll have more details about that later in the episode. Okay, let's get started. Here's my co-host, Mike Sherrick. Hey, welcome. It's Saturday. And it's Mike and Bob into the gap, and we got a special guest today, Professor Jason Hill from DePaul University, the author of "We Have Overcome." And so, welcome, Jason. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, we start the show off with the documentation of existing conditions. Yeah. We, 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 we. You know, it's like a mantra we talk about all the time. But, but today I have a little something special for you. Okay, please do. And I know you. <clears throat> excuse me. You're one of the few people. That like surprises every day, just like other people only like surprises on their birthdays. You like them all, all the time, I, so I, as long as they're kind yeah. of good ones. But anyway, uh, yeah. So look, I, I'm basing this on, you know, uh, some of the stuff that came out of the coaching is the degree to which we, you know, our different reactions to stress and mm-hmm. and quote unquote trauma. M- mine is like uh, comedy. So I try and think of I, as little funny things come to me, and here's one thing that came to you. So here's what I'm going to do, Mike. I'm going to read a sentence, a question, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then you're going to fill in the blank. Okay. All right? This sounds stupid already. Yeah. So but here that, it comes. That means it's going to be great. Okay. All right. Is the current prime minister of Canada such a <laughs> blank that he may use hemorrhoid ointment as an aftershave balm? <laughs> <laughs> Let me read that again. Oh, my God. Is the God. current prime minister of Canada such a blank? Butthead. That, that he might point. use hemorrhoid yeah. ointment. That would be butthead. I don't know. Right? I just thought that was yeah, kind that of was interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so, You're talking about uh, Pierre Trudeau's Pierre Trudeau, the... Uh, Justin for, Forget Trudeau's. about the fact that he's a terrible prime minister, in my opinion. He's just a terrible he's human being. He's a weird, he's a freaky weird dude. Yeah. yeah. goofball. Yeah. He's you know? weak. And, uh, he's weak. He's an... He, Bob, one of the conversations... He's a non-man. Well, it kind of is. Right. Yeah, yeah. And he's done things that are highly. Yeah, he's a creep. I don't know, just weird stuff. And uh, oh, he just. And then you know, I don't know. I don't want to talk disparagingly about Canadians, even though, from what I understand, they they're talking about us in a nasty way quite often. That's okay. Um. So they're look, Canadians. So here's some you know of... my position on the Northern Wall. <laughs> yes, I do, and I think it really should go under consideration. Because, I know. You know it's pretty. Anybody could come across. I know it's a big border over there. It's a long way. And, you know, we put all this attention on the southern border, but hey. I, I think we need a northern border. No, so northern wall. Please so, put up a snow fence. So speaking of right? trauma. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. California's California. first Surgeon General. This is the article you sent me, but it's really, it's a, it is a juicy one. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to mine here. Uh, it says here that uh, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris has an ambitious dream. Screen every student for childhood trauma before entering school. Who hasn't had trauma, childhood trauma? Well, you know, you know what's really interesting. It speaks to why screen it. This speaks to one of the things that Jason talks about is the, the, uh, the cult of victimology, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like before kids even know they got a problem, they're going to be labeled with a problem that they're a victim, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. if you were born without uh, C-section, you were a traumatic birth. Think about going through all that. No, you're right. Being squeezed through well, flesh and, and popping your head out. Well, and it's also a relationship to struggle and to resistance, right? Like, I don't know about you guys, but the way I learn mm-hmm. is through resistance and struggle and hitting my head up against the wall. I mean, your story of immigration, isn't that basically it? Like overcoming some version of quote-unquote trauma? Well, 
I think that our identities really are forged in the crucibles of the things that would obliterate your identity. Mm-hmm. Like coming to America and having had to work up to three jobs, 45 hours a week to put myself through school mm. and coming upon great obstacles and having, yeah. you know, graduated magna cum laude at the top of my class, mm-hmm. but not seeing myself as a victim, seeing as an opportunity, op- as yeah. an opportunity to grow yeah. you know, all of those challenges. Yeah. Mm. So much of that, it, that that's what this whole idea of like victimization is making me. But it's where the money is really. Say more on that. It's a cash cow. It's a cash cow. You know. Oh. Well, look at the look at the left. Look at someone like Tanahisi Coates, the most celebrated Black American writer in this world, in this country. He gets uh, a National Book Award. He gets uh, fifteen thousand dollars per lecture to tell white people that they are the worst creation, God's creation on this earth. That America is an imperialist, intrinsically uh, bigoted country that the American dream was foisted on the backs of black people, that the American dream is intrinsically racist, and white people pay him hundreds of thousands of dollars, mostly liberals, of course, to hear that they're bad people, reinforcing their own sense of power because they feel that when a victim comes um, you know, scowling them, it reinforces their own sense of their superiority. So if, oh, if you, if you, if you, but if you end up like someone like me who says, I'm not a victim, you don't have that kind of metaphysical power yeah. to harm me. I'll never be a victim. If I encounter racism, I deal with it head on. I don't roll run into some grievance committee. I, I grapple you by the throat or I collar you and I dress you down. Um, when I came to America, I went straight into a, a, the Stone Mountain, which was Ku Klux Klan country. Mm-hmm. 95% of the members there had their Confederate flags. And I communicated no sense of fear of white people. And, um, you know, when I encountered racism, I just dealt with it head on like a, a grown person. Uh, that doesn't really sell books. Nobody wants to hear that. Everybody yeah. <laughs> wants to hear that you're some whining child because there's a managerial. I'll tell you why it's a cash code because there's always a liberal managerial class out there that will pay to take care of you and expropriate your agency, take it away from you and say, Little boy, little girl, you're not, you don't have any creative agency. Well, we're, we're the grownups who will take care of it for you. Oh, oh isn't that odd? Oh See, and, and this gets back into the thing that we were talking about. First of all, we didn't even introduce you. This is, this is Professor Jason. Oh, you, you actually did, but keep going. This Do is Professor, Professor Jason <laughs> Damien Hill from uh, DePaul University and the author of uh, We Have Overcome. And it's really a pleasure for you to be here. Thank I mean, you. Thank you so yeah. much. I'm so excited. It was, it was uh, I talked to, right talked to you the first time yesterday. That's right, yeah. And it was like, dude. <laughs> like, I so, wish our show was eight hours long today instead of just one hour. All right, let me yeah. bullet through just so we right. yeah, stack this up. So the Libertarian Party is now uh, supporting the decriminalization of prostitution. You sent me this. This is, it's the, the full-blown... Uh, I mean, sex is already commodified, but mm-hmm. there isn't that a formalization well, of commodification? It, it, for me, you know, again, as a registered member of the Libertarian Party, and, you know, my beef with the Libertarian Party is they always find the next shiny object to go on to that's insane. Mm-hmm. And this is it, you know. So it, it, they're, they're always chasing some dragon so they can get noticed. That yeah. makes no difference. And, you know, yeah, should prostitution be decriminalized? Absolutely. Should it become a core industry in our culture? I don't think so. You know, and that's kind of what they're pushing. So it's stupid. So here's another one. How Illinois schools teach preschoolers to celebrate transgenderism. And, and this is and what of we, course, were talking. we were talking about a few minutes ago, which is right the, before we the started sec- the sexualization of children. Uh, oh, and in this God. case, they're telling they're talking to uh, District 65. This is here. Evanston Skokie. 
Uh, oh, to, nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it starts at three to five years old to get a sense of uh, what's going on. The article goes into it. I mean, it's it's you know other parts of the curriculum suggested these small children that enjoy dre- that enjoying dress up, playing with boy toys or girl toys. Or loving people of either sex or both sexes might mean they are gay or transgender. It also tells tells children that uh, clothes communicate nothing about what, uh, one's sex. And then uh, you know he, this this guy he had these videos or like instructional videos. I, I can't this is more of it. the disgusting. of the constant and never ending attack on masculinity, mm-hmm. and and the narrative that there's something wrong if you demonstrate any expression of masculinity. Now, the thing we got to do, Bob, and that's why this show exists, is we have to, you know, we are a stand for responsible masculinity. There's no excuse for right. for rape and abuse and abuse of power, right. abuse of anything. Right? And there's no excuse for men and women to not be partners Absolutely. in creating a world that, that works, works for, for everyone, for humanity. Yeah. And uh, the reality is, is that men and women who are constantly in conflict make really good slaves. That's pretty much it. If you can get people, you know, bashing up one one another constantly, they can be more easily exploited. And yeah. that, that's how we see it. Well, I'm going to say something a little bit more controversial here, and I'm going to say that, <laughs> you know, we, we live in a cult, Bring not it. just, we're not just in a cult of Americaphobia, but a cult of misandry, of anti-male, Absolutely. male hatred. And men have to stand up and say, look, Western civilization, you can't fudge the history. Yeah. Western civilization is the creation of man. Yep. Male, gay or straight, male, men, for by and large, in medicine, in science, architecture, technology, created Western civilization. Whenever there's a natural catastrophe, it never surprises me. It's the men who are tiring the street, yep. who are clearing up, who are scaling the skyscrapers and cleaning the windows, risking their lives for men and women yep. after Jason, a natural disaster. You're talking about that Western civilization is a product of men. Right? That's right. And when anything happens, when there's a disaster or something, it's guys that typically jump in. And what I was thinking, are you a football fan at all? Well, I'm, a so- I'm more of a soccer fan. So, of course you are, because you're from Jamaica. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm kind of like a football lunatic. And the offensive line is essential to success in football. And these guys aren't seen or heard or anything like that. They're these big, rugged, tough dudes. And they go down there and they put their face in the dirt. And they knock people on their asses so that the, the guys with the ball can score. Yes. And I think that's kind of how I see the way our culture's set up. Like, there's guys, and our role is to create – because what they do is they create the environment for the offense to move, right? And what I see is that's kind of the role of men is we create the environment, and then equality is everybody else gets to play. Right. But it's essential upon us. And what's happened is I think because of Me Too and all these other things that have gone – even way before Me Too, the various forms of feminism and, and the, the, the complaining – is men have abdicated the role. And when you abdicate the role of offensive line in football, the game ceases to work. And I think that's where we're at. Is Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I just want to interject a moment because when we talk about men creating Western civilization, mm-hmm. uh, and I've had, and I say this because I've had conversations about the show with women, and I have it all the time, and many of them are immediately, what do you mean it's about men? You know, like, What? Well, can women come on? Well, of course women could come on. Yeah, our first guess was actually so, a feminist. So it's our important. second guess. I think it's yeah. important to to make the distinction Yeah. that when we're talking about men creating Western civilization, quote unquote, mm-hmm. or setting the table for others to participate in whatnot, yeah. 
be a little bit more distinctive or clear about what that means, because I think people will say, well, didn't women give birth to men or don't women participate in Western civilization? This isn't denying anybody anything. Right. You know, I'm, I'm it just, just, just that out there because yeah. I know that that is what is very common for people to say. How many women were on the boats in Normandy? I'm sure there were some nurses. That landed on the beaches in Normandy? No. No. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Right. Okay. We're That's talk- all I'm saying. Yeah, we're as talk- long as we make, make, make No, we're talking clear. about fundamentals here. We're not yeah. talking about accidental contributions or we're not talking right. about we're talking about the basic fundamentals we're talking yeah. about the pioneers the people who made yeah. sure who changed who who are paradigm changers who are mm-hmm. shift changers in in yeah. certain fields pioneers mm-hmm. in medicine well, all fields yeah in all fields yeah and they're men mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i mean you can't fudge the history right well you can if you're an academic right and if you're a historical revisionist you can <laughs> yes <laughs> you can yeah. do all, you can you can you can you can you can do almost anything with a slate of hand if you're an academic. Yeah, so <laughs> that's one of the things I wanted to get into you or to ask you about. What's it like being on a university campus today in 2019? Well, it's not a very especially if you're a conservative independent conservative independent such as myself. It's it's a it's a hard road um, because what happens is that, and I've written about this extensively, is that I think that our universities have ceased being universities in the real sense of the term, in the sense that the purpose of a university, among other things, was to give you a set of life skills so that at the end of four years, you were able to be a self-governing, autonomous creature who could navigate through life. It wasn't just to equip you for job readiness. It was able to make you, equip you for citizenship and and become a self-governing, autonomous agent. Now we're creating a set of psychological and emotional cripples in one sense by expropriating students' agencies. But more nefariously than that, we are turning, or especially the humanities and the social sciences, or universities into bastions of indoctrination centers where students are not being taught critical thinking skills. They are the guinea pigs of their professors, their cultural Marxist professors who ram down their throats a set of empirically uh, proven to be false slogans and bromides and rhetoric about the failure of capitalism, the intrinsic downfall of Western civilization, and our universities are indoctrination centers, and if you dare to speak up about the, the, the beauty of capitalism, that aside from the fact that it has lifted millions of people out of poverty, that ethically it is a proper system, the contributions that Western civilization has made to humanity, you are seen as an enemy. Um, I cannot emphasize how the professoriate actually hate America uh, and hate capitalism. And um, so our our universities have become bastions of indoctrination centers for cultural Marxists. And and we're really not educating people. We're just indoctrinating them to go out into the world uh, to become replicas of their they're parasitic welfare scholar professors. Wow. Let me just say something, because it sounds like you are speaking as an individual. Well, I'm a Marlboro, I'm a Marlboro <laughs> man. I'm a rugged, I'm an implacable, intransigent, what? rugged individualist. You, you know, that is so brazen. I've never heard anything <laughs> so brazen in my life well, that you're speaking as an individual. Yeah. Rather than a representative of a collective. Oh no! I mean, how can you do that? 
<laughs> one of the one of the remarkable things from your conversation that I just got now. Oh my goodness. So I, I went to undergrad school at Northern Illinois, right? And I, I majored in sex, drugs, and rock and roll, as most, <laughs> most people did in the late 70s, right? And one of the things, though, one of the great lessons I learned was I lived in the Greek system. I lived in a fraternity house. And one of the things of being in a fraternity house is we were actually sovereign agencies. Mm-hmm. Like, we operated on our own. We had a profit and loss. If we didn't make it, they closed us down. Uh, we were responsible for marketing, for developing. I learned more by having, I don't know, five or six different offices in the fraternity than I did in every classroom. Mm-hmm. And it was part of the university experience. And then what I realized is most universities, it was just, it happened this week, most universities are out to shut down the Greek system. Mm-hmm. And I never- Do they have a problem with Greeks? Well, the, you know, fraternities are stories. A joke. And, and I didn't get the connection before, you know, yeah. as into the whole thing. Because, again, because um, you use the word agency, and I love that word as an expression of oneself, right? Yes. What, One of your favorite words. It, it really like. is. One and of it, my favorite words that you use. It's, and it, it's the thing that I learned most in college through the fraternity was to be self-reliant. Mm-hmm. You know? And we did a lot of wacky stuff to be self-reliant. We mm-hmm. learned what worked. We mm-hmm. learned what didn't work, mm-hmm. you know? You know, but, but it's really, it's really. I mean, what they're really doing when I say a managerial class is, is in effect, and creating a set of, a set of psychological cripples. Mm-hmm. You, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a prefab agenda. We're, we're trying to move this country into socialism, mm-hmm. and we start by the universities. So if you can expropriate the agency of, especially ethnic minorities, Hispanics, Black, Latino, Native Americans, yeah. cripple them, tell them that they're helpless. You have a recipe for a socialist system. Yeah, a welfare class that is ripe to vote this country into socialism. And then, if you also attack "quote unquote" the patriarchy, yes, the likely substitute then is the socialist system. Yes, because what you're doing is you're moving one leadership structure out of the way. Yes, and creating a a vacuum for another one. Yes. And, and 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 it's I I just now I'm starting to connect the dots in the stuff that you've been talking about since I've Thank known you. you. <laughs> so. Philosophy, correct? Yes. Okay. Hegelian dialectic. Right? Right. Yeah. Is it is it actually in play like the the uh the uh oh my gosh, the school out of Frankfurt. The Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School. school. Yeah. And uh the you know, what some people call problem reaction solution or uh, was it the synthesis? Uh, no, it's a thesis, antith- antithesis, synthesis, yeah, and synthesis, synthesis, yes, moving us inexor- inexorably toward uh, engineering us essentially using that as a tool. Is that is that? You that's see the, that? I mean, that's the way I see it. I don't yeah. see this as sort of accidental, mm-hmm. and I think that you have to sort of get men out of the way. Not accidental. It's not accidental. It's 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 there's a movement planning this whole thing. First of all, you have to. You have to demonize men, and you have to you have to promote a cult of misandry, and say that m- the patriarchy and you know is a problem. Men are the problem. Uh, you right. have to start feminizing boys to make them feel emotionally like women. One thing one thing that I take as a constitutive feature of masculinity is decisiveness. So when you have this continuous agonistic hand wringing in a state of constant indecisiveness, oh which is what we're placing our <laughs> students in, we're not treating teaching our students oh. to make decisive 
autonomous decisions of of their lives. And then deal with it right or wrong afterward or or effective, ineffective or something like that. Right, right. Right. So so we we, we graduate these cripples. We graduate these helpless students who, 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 who can't make decisions, who think of themselves as victims. And what are they going to be the legacies of? Well, a, so, a socialist system that will take care of them, make all their decisions for themselves, a bureaucratic, a bloated bu- totalitarian bureaucracy that will make the decisions for themselves and um, emancipate them from from their own responsibilities. This is not so accidental. Th- this is so, the abdication of masculinity that I've been talking about is what you're actually outlining here. Y- yeah. yeah. But, but the difference is, and I got to tell you, he calls me and he goes, Bob, <laughs> dude, you're going to love our guest. <laughs> Yeah, you guys are like <laughs> because I, I've been talking about this yeah. for a, quite a while with Mike, yeah. and I think for most people, Jason, we tend to resist and go, "Come on, what are you saying?" Meaning that it's that well organized and that systematized and that intentional and that uh, the and it's the result of either a explicit or inexplicit collusiveness. Yes. Right? Yes. When you're a victim, yeah. you have a coercive monopoly on um you have a coercive monopoly on morality. And when you're a victim, you have perpetual innocence, the imprimatur of per- <laughs> per- perpetual innocence stamped on your forehead. And what men have done is because uh largely feminists have picked out a set of, you know, bad boy behaviors as constitutive features of masculinity, men have given up the language of morality and have said, have, have, it's almost like they're bowing to uh, some, some great archetypal mother figure and saying, yes, we're bad, we're horrible creatures. We give you, we give you, you have the coercive of, of, uh, voice of morality. It's time for men to stand up and say, no, damn it. We are moral creatures. Men have always, always throughout history condemned rape. Yeah. Ethical men have always condemned rape. Ethical men, there have always been ethical. The ethical, the, the greatest ethical systems, going back to the Abrahamic religions, were created by men. Yeah. Morality, moral systems. I'm, a more, I'm an ethicist by training. All our great moral systems, whether uh, religious or, or theist or non-theistic, from Aristotle, Plato, Immanuel Kant, all great moral systems were the legatees of men. Guys, we're going to have to take a break. Thank you so much, Jason, because this is exactly why this show was created, was what you just delivered. Bob Pontarelli here, and I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. We'll have more Into the Gap episode highlights after a short break. Into the Gap is on a quest for bringing self-knowledge right up against the glass of the great display window of life. We're also on a quest for advertisers to support this podcast, our weekly radio show, and our unfiltered podcast. If you'd like to get more information and inquire about rates, please contact me at bob at intothegapmedia.com. Greetings, this is Bob Pontarelli of Into the Gap, and we're really psyched to have the High PSI company sponsoring our show. High PSI was founded in 1976 and provides the industrial cleaning industry's finest pressure washers and cleaners. They also represent brands like Hotsey, Alcoda, and Aladdin, as well as single operator fleet wash systems. You can access their services and a very competent, dedicated staff through their website at highpsi.com, or just give them a call at 800-666-3900. This is Into the Gap, the podcast, where we bring you highlights of our radio show, which airs every Saturday at 1 o'clock Central Time on WCGO AM and FM.
We also recently introduced the Into the Gap Unfiltered podcast, where we pack the current cultural narrative into a sausage grinder of critical thought, and where whatever enters that sacred hog casing gets served up hot and juicy on a platter of freedom and liberty. Find it, rate it, and subscribe to it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Our latest episodes are also available on SoundCloud at Into the Gap Media and our website, intothegapmedia.com. Okay, back to the show now. Here's Mike. We just went through a pretty powerful conversation. I'm sitting here, and uh, Bob and I have had been engaged in this conversation for a year now. And I'm like, Bob, you're crazy, you know? <laughs> and what I realized is... Vindication! Well, I don't know if it's vindication or not, but what I realized is part of the problem, and, and, and it's a version of the application, okay, is I'm kind of an alpha male. I mean, I'm 6'2". I was 280. I'm like 260 now. Um, Put it back, back on. No. <laughs> no, I actually feel better. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I used to compete in powerlifting. I've had MMA fights. The whole thing, right? Like the dude. Ride a Harley, drive a pickup truck. Right. Can drive a bulldozer. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm like, you talk about the Marlboro man. Like I'm smoking the ciggy butts all the time, right? And when Bob would say this, I said, Bob, you're, you know, no, man, it doesn't happen. It's like you just got to go. Well, keep n- there's not that. How could there be that degree of uh, co- of collaboration or, yeah. or you know, organization or you know, and collusion? What I, what I saw was is that independent thinking can actually keep you blind from your environment, right? Hmm. And because, like, I'm so... A strength and a weakness. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it is, it's that, that, you know, you know, it is, there's two edges to every sword. And so my independence didn't allow me to see until way... Do you know what I saw it? Mm. When I got heckled when I did the TED Talk. Okay. That's the first time I saw it. Right. Because I was doing this TED Talk in front of a bunch of primarily feminists. Yeah, you got hit with groupthink. It was, exactly. (laughs) And it was about, my, my talk was about men being responsible, right? And I was sharing, like, kind of how guys can get to be irresponsible. And then, you know, I start getting, like, fuck you. Oh, I said it. <laughs> like, I get start getting heckled, you know? <laughs> I said that over, I hope they, they collect that out. Yeah. Uh, okay. but, but it wasn't me really actually saying it. It was saying what it was said to me. Yeah. But, yeah, so I, I start getting heckled. And I was, like, taken back by it. You know, I didn't expect that, you know? And it was at that point in time, the two, I realized two things. Number one, what I was saying was landing. Right, because the resistance I was feeling was a could only occur if what I was saying was true. Right, and then the other thing was like this is real. Like I wasn't sure if it was real or not. If this battle between good and evil, genders or whatever this is, was actually going on, and that's when I knew it was real. And that's actually the genesis of why we're here. You know, I am so I am so pumped from what you're saying. I can't even sit down, and I never stand up. No, I'm like the, one the first time up. I've yeah. stood up on the show. Yeah, I can't even sit down because of the the gravity of what's being uh, opened up here, cleared, you know, made visible or made distinct. Right. So yeah. So there's a couple couple of topics I'd like to run by you and just get your feedback from them, and 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 and, and these may occur as like kind of like low hanging fruit, but I really want to hear your position like there's a lot of talk on wokeness mm. and when i hear that the hair on the back of my neck stands up mm-hmm. like you know what what is that mean what does that really mean well for me you know i've, I've talked about this and i've written about this when i it, 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 it's first of all it's a bunch of people who think that they have the course of monopoly on truth mm. on what what on what 
constitutes a set of unassailable truths yeah. about justice in the world. Yeah. That the moral grammar for contestation and argumentation is not up for grabs. Right. So when it comes to things like what is offensive, what is cultural appropriation, who should say what, who should, you know, whether a, a, a person even has a right to put a Confederate flag in front of his front lawn, yeah. that that is so offensive that we all agree on this. Or taking statues down. Or taking statues down. Wokeness yeah. is a consciousness that's meant to, what the, in, the, in, in the past, what the feminists would call emancipate you from false consciousness. <laughs> so, wokeness, woke, so wokeness is nothing more than a reiteration of that kind of mindset where we, we, the smart, enlightened people, are going to in, not indoctrinate you, um, re-educate your, 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 your crude sensibilities and, 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 and make you fit for uh, entrance into the pantheon of the new community the new human community, into what is really just and how you have hurt and offended people. Wokeness is about staying alert to the ways in which a bunch of oppressive others are marginalizing and hurting the sensibilities of, vic of lowercase others who are kept outside the domain of the ethical and who can't defend themselves. It's a form of fascism. Okay. Because what yeah. it does is it shuts down free speech. Emancipating one from false consciousness. Yeah, that's what it is. That's extraordinary. That's, an, that's a really scary thing yeah. to even hear. Yeah. Really. Yeah, but that's that's exactly but, but, what it but, is. But, yeah. Because they, they're not they don't want they don't want conversation. What they want to do is silent. Wokeness is not about having a conversation, a rational conversation. First of all, the people who are woke think that the construction of reason itself is an imperialist construct by white males who constructed logic and reason to silence others. So they don't want a conversation. They want to silence you yeah. oh, through yeah. coerciveness, through, through bullying tactics. So this is the replacing reason with feelings. Part. That's right. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. cult of feelings. Unbelievable. Yeah. And I'm offended. So what if you're offended? Yes, get over it. You have a democratic right to be offended. Get over it. Yeah, I know. I'm offended. So what? So I'm what? happy for you. Yeah. I've got gas. I can't help it. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's no, really, it's like, who cares? You know, I, 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 I shared with Bob, there's this bar. So I, I'm a big sports fan. People start to get what a geek I am and what like a <laughs> yeah, anyway. So I go down to spring training pretty frequently. And there's this bar in, in Scottsdale, Arizona called the Rusty Spur. And like horses will ride in it. It's like a cowboy bar, right? And the guy who owns the place is drunk all the time. He sings dirty songs. The place is outrageous. And all he gets long nut bottles of beer. And he's got three rules. The first rule is tip his bartenders and waitresses well because he doesn't pay them for crap, right? The second rule is if you can't have fun, it's your own damn fault. And the third rule is don't let your fun get in anyone else's, mm. right? Like it's it's like the constitution of freedom, mm -hmm. like his rules, right? And and I left that place. I'm going. This is like the perfect environment for anything. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about is wokeness is actually I'm going to dictate how you can have fun, mm -hmm. and I'm going to get my stuff all over yours. Mm -hmm. So it's just it just violates every principle that a rusty spur number one, but <laughs> it just violates the principles of basic freedom and liberty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it just it's like God. Um, yeah. Thanks for that. Um. I read something else about. It. I mean, I'm, like I'm. In, this last 24 hours has been fascinating. You use a word called assimilation, especially when it relates to immigration. It's kind of a dirty word now. Mm -hmm. I, I'd love if you would share more about that. Well, 
assimilation has a dirty word because people think that, and I'm a, you know, it's an immigrant from Jamaica. I came here when I was 20. Yeah. And um, I'm a great lover of this republic, the greatest republic that has ever existed on the face of the earth yeah. and mm-hmm. probably will ever exist on the face of the earth, America. Um, I think we're seeing a problem with an influx of immigrants who, and I'm thinking mostly of, you know, Islamicists yeah. and, and, and people who now want to think that Sharia law can be compatible with American law. Uh, but not just Muslims. We're seeing an influx of, of immigrants who want to impose their sensibilities, their way of life, mm-hmm. and superimpose it on the American people. Yeah. And I have to think that immigration is not a right. It is a privilege. Yeah. You, should be, you should be eternally grateful when a country opens open its borders to you and let you in. Any country. Any country. Yeah. And when you enter a country, you have a right to learn the language, learn mm-hmm. the customs, the mores of its people. You don't necessarily dispel with your your personality or with your right. your 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 language or your nobody this is a free country you can you can you can be who you are mm-hmm. but you have a right to assimilate at least to the political mores and yeah. norms of a country and yeah. that's when i talk about assimilation i'm talking about politically assimilating you can believe that women or are inferior to men yeah. but you d- you dare not come here and say that i'm going to force my wife to wear a burqa right and disenfranchise her by telling her she can't vote. Yeah. Or we're going to kick you out. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Awesome. So I, I've got a question. I've been, this is a loaded question, too. Mm-hmm. I love those. All right. I, I want to get your opinion on one of my, uh, the people in the media who just drives me up a wall. I want to kill this guy. I don't want to kill him. I can't say I want to kill him. Yeah, but he drives you. me up a wall. But the Reverend Al Sharpton, what's your position on him? Um, he's a race hustler. He's a huckster. You know, <laughs> right. I mean, he's, yeah. He's a, he's a race pimp. He's a race pimp. Yeah, <laughs> That's exactly I, what yeah, he is. Yeah. I have no respect yeah. for this man. I yeah. mean, I watched him back in, you know, when I was in college in the 80s, yeah. and he was the biggest, you know, um, a with his, race pimp. With I his, love that. His, with his overprocessed hair. Um, yeah. That, um, you know, when he was on the front lines um, calling, you know, almost every white person in this country was almost like a blue eyed devil. Yeah. And now, of course, he's he's um, allowing, uh, uh, permitting Democrat, uh, you know, putting some sort of litmus test that for every Democrat to to pass the threshold of racial uh, acceptance, racial acceptance, yeah. that they must open up uh, reparations for the question of reparations as a legitimate one. Yeah. Um, I I think he is is something of a racial tyrant. Yeah. In terms of um, disallowing or bullying people, and and the Democrats are cowards for doing this. I think you know when he held this 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 forum quite recently, in which all the Democratic candidates who were running for presidency had to pledge their allegiance to um, opening up reparations for inquiry or something like that. Oh and right, he was at that right that that hearing. That hearing, he was yes, he was yes, he was yes. he was the master I of ceremony. He was the architect of this whole thing. Yeah, right. And I thought this is just disgraceful. Not one of them stood up and said, "Well, Reverend Sharpton, you know, I I don't I, I disagree with you." You know. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I don't I I I have no respect for him. Jason, I think one of the one of the distinctions missing in the world today, especially in the world of politics, is courage. And if you notice our, our slogan up there, courage over comfort, is, is really what we're about. It's saying a thing and, and standing for things that maybe aren't popular but are necessary. And, and I appreciate that because there is just an absence of courage. There's so much kowtowing, so much, and, and a lot of bullying going on and, and, and leverage. And, and, and I like how sharp and the, the race pimp 
God, he makes well, me. He, he, and, five, and not only that, five million dollars behind on his oh, taxes, and he gets the entire Obama administration. Well, the he other walked thing, walked around with. Joe know, Sc- what would happen if you and I, or one of us, were that far in arrears on, not five million. Try five thousand. Yeah. Well, plus, Joe Scarborough goes around, you know, smooching his keister, and it's just, it's just, it's disgusting. But Joe Scarborough's disgusting, you know. So, well, cool. So, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to. Thanks so much again. We're going to take a break in about sixty seconds, and uh, when we get back, we're going to let uh, Jason dig into his book and tell us about his book, and also, what do you see as next for us if we really want to keep this experiment of freedom and liberty alive? You know, I really want your your. Uh, wisdom on that okay so that's what we're going to do in the, the last segment of our show you cool with that i'm so done with that <laughs> excellent <laughs> excellent awesome. bob you got anything before we wrap it up no i'm just like obviously i'm on floating on a cloud i, here I know I, we we're now getting deeper and deeper into uh, this this show was born of conversations between mike and i yeah and i and i said to him one day you know and we were in a coaching relationship you know wow these these this is so powerful. This should be public. All right. And then a couple of months later, he calls me. Boom. We're, we're out of here. Show. We'll be back in two minutes, everyone. Thank you. You're listening to Into the Gap, the podcast, where we bring you highlights of our weekly radio show, which airs Saturdays at 1 o'clock Central Time on WCGO AM and FM, Evanston, Chicago. We also recently introduced the Into the Gap Unfiltered podcast, where leadership, lifelong learning, and critical thinking are leveraged in the service of freedom and liberty. Find it, rate it, and subscribe to it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. The latest episodes of that podcast, and this one too, are available on SoundCloud at Into the Gap Media and on our website, intothegapmedia.com. If you'd like to get in touch with questions, comments, or to inquire about sponsorship opportunities, please email me at bob at intothegapmedia.com. Let's go back to the show now. Here's my partner, Mike Sherrick. Hey, we're back. This is Mike and Bob and our guest, Professor Jason Hill. So, Professor, thanks again for you being here. Uh, let's talk about your book a little bit. It's The title of the book is? We Have Overcome an Immigrant's Letter to the American People. That's awesome. And this is really, is it's kind of part memoir and part? It's part memoir and uh, it's part analysis of American politics. Um, I wrote it um, as an homage to the American people. Uh, it, it's dedicated to the American people. The, dedica- the, the dedication page reads, uh, to the American people, to the best within you. That's awesome. Um, because I just I just grew really sick and tired um, uh, of, it started during the Obama administration and um, when I saw him in his Cairo talk and I saw him talking about American soft power and, and soft power and, and pedaling backwards and then a bunch of left-wing writers started, you know, writing uh, horrible things about America. And I thought, mm-hmm. this is the age of Americophobia, and it's time yeah. for me to write this book to celebrate what makes America an exceptional country. It's I believe in an American exceptionalism, and also what makes Americans an exceptionalist people, what makes this an unprecedented phenomenon in yeah. the history of humanity. Yeah. And it tells the story of immigrants such as myself who came here legally with $120 in my pocket, and uh, other immigrants who came here legally with very little and who uh, worked their way up and became quite successful. And how it's, it's the book also is a recipe for those immigrants who want to do it. There's a recipe for success, a formula for success in America. Excellent. So you know? it probably doesn't require a lot of government grants and things like that. I got no grants and I got no student loans. <laughs> I didn't think so. I did it the old fashioned way. Yeah, which I worked three jobs. Yeah, well, you know, you know Jason, what, one of the things that we, 
stand for all the time. And we actually believe that uh, through individual responsibility comes a connection to freedom and opportunity. And what you're talking about is, is a demonstration of that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, thank you for that. Tell us more about the book. I'd love to hear about the part about white privilege. Well, yeah, there's this, no one can, well, one of the things I address in the book is that, um, uh, that America is a white supremacist country. You know, it used to be a white supremacist mm-hmm. country in the sense that we did have an ideology of white supremacy. That we did have an ideology uh, promulgating the superiority of the white race among other races. Mm-hmm. No such ideology exists anymore. Right. Right. The 1964 Civil Rights Act took care of that. We do have white supremacists as fringe groups running around in this country. Mm-hmm. But we also have, uh, um, you know, gang members wreaking even more havoc than we do. So I wanted to address this issue of white privilege because I wanted to complicate it because I have taught for 23 years now, I've taught in a number of universities, I've taught poor white kids from the cornfield of Southern Illinois, and I've taught poor black kids from East East St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And I realized that the notion of white privilege is a very, very complicated one. I look at myself as a black man with uh, a PhD, actually five college degrees, um, I'm fluent in Spanish, I read French, and I look at some of the students that I have taught, um, students from um, Appalachia who've come to study with me at Southern Illinois, where I used to teach. And by the way, a lot of my students in a university that I taught, 85% of them are from the Ku Klux Klan. Really? Yeah, semi-literate. I wow. used to tutor them. Wow. And I thought, what you know, one of them said to me, I'm nothing but a dumb farm kid, and I'll never make anything of my life. He was a, a failing student, and for one year, wow. he had the insignia ring, which meant he belonged in a clan. And I, I tutored this kid for a year, and he, he ended up getting an A in my class. And I thought to myself, I'm actually more privileged than this guy in many, many respects, mm-hmm. because if someone subjects me to racism, I've got the linguistic tools, I've got the financial means to hire the wow. best lawyer yeah. to sue the hell out of the person <laughs> who's being racist to me. Mm-hmm. He neither has the educational background or the cultural apparatus that I brought to this country to defend himself. So while no one can exist that there are certain leverages that whites might exercise that blacks don't have, the notion of white privilege has got to be complicated because it's banded about in a way yeah. in this country that it's just very, very problematic. Yeah. And nobody talks about class and, and the way that class sometimes supersedes race yeah. in this country. Well, I think they collapse the two. Yeah. You know? And I, I think uh, yeah, people instantly think that because black people are of, a lower, are of a lower economic class, which isn't true. You know? So, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. You know, it, it's, I, I think one of the things that uh, happens in our culture, today, everyone's looking for cheat codes. You know, the easy way, the simple way, the shortcut. And so I think through identity politics, that's just a kind of a social cheat code. You know? You, you know, and I want to say another thing too. Yeah. Our campuses and our institutions are so progressive. I mean, I work, I've been a professor. I used to like that word progressive and I despise it. Well, it's become know? a nefarious thing because yeah. I tell you what, I, there is no college in our, uh, in our country today that will not bend over backward. If you're a transgender lesbian, if you're a black man especially, black men are sought after. Yeah. If you're a black man with a C <laughs> average, yeah. there's no college that will not send a plane for you and court and fet and woo you to attend their college. Yeah. If you're an Asian student with an A+, you're going to put, be put on a waiting list for right. two years. Right. Right? 
Yeah. But if you're a black man, if you're a transgendered lesbian, if you are a, a Hispanic person, universities are so progressive that you will be courted. If you're a, I, I know this because I work in the field. Mm -hmm. If you're a white male with a PhD in education, you're probably not going to get a job. Yeah. Right? So again, the whole notion of white privilege has to be complicated and has to be discussed, which I do in my book, we have mm -hmm. overcome in a very nuanced way and not just be banded about yeah. as some kind of um, easy way for vic victimization and the cult of victimology to take ascendancy over the lives of real people. This goes on beyond just the universities. It, it, this goes on in corporate America also. In corporate America too, yeah. You know? I yeah. mean, if, if you're a white guy, you better be really good at what you do if you want to get a promotion right now. You know, especially if you're in competition to a woman or a minority or something like that. How do we get out of this? How do we get out of this? Well, or, or what's next is probably a better question. What's next? What's next is, first of all, I think, for our universities to be defunded completely. Nice. I think get the federal government out of the university system and try to convince uh, alumni donors and entrepreneurs to stop funding their destroyers. Yeah. Because what you have is... Uh, a bunch of cultural Marxists, anti-capitalists, anti-Western civilization um, advocates preaching hatred. How do we move forward without conflict? Uh, the way Mike and I see it, it's one person at a time. You, you, you speak to one person at a time about these kind of things, and we open up a dialogue at one person at a time. On the one hand, and on well, the other, you know, we ended the last time by saying shutting down, the, defunding the universities. Yeah, I think we have to go back to fundamental principles, and I think that we have to stop. Think, I think, in the moral division of labor, we can fight a battle piecemeal, and we can fight it comprehensively. Mm -hmm. I think, for example, millennials and now the Z generation uh, of students that I'm teaching have completely bought into the social rhetoric because they like to hear "free this, free that." When I sit down and I tell them, "Look," When you vote a government into socialism, you're shackled with already $100,000 in student debt. Let me tell you about how you're going to be taxed on the socialist system. You think about paying back your student loans. You dream about starting your own small business and about owning your own home by the time you're 35. This will never happen on a socialist system. No one has explained to them, first of all, the moral uh, correctness of a social system, but no one has explained to them what socialism will actually cost them in financial terms. Do you know what, I, do you know what I'm getting from this conversation? Is we've lost, as a culture, we've lost contact with morality. We've made morality yes. a dirty word. Yes. And Absolutely. when you... Morality is a rudder. It's not an absolute, right? But it's a rudder. It keeps you going in a direction. And when you what happens when you take a rudder away from a plane or a boat? It just it, you're in chaos, and that's actually what hap what's happened. And what's happened, and the the removal of the rudder, I will say, was when Barack Obama got elected, and he became this universal apologist for the American way of doing things. Is America perfect? No, not at all. We make mistakes all the time. We screw up all the time. Happen continuously. We will make errors, and part of making errors is correcting the error, mm -hmm. you know? And what you learn by correcting the error and how you grow by correcting the error. Yeah. And Barack Obama made that element, that part of the process, obsolete. Or Well, he attempted to make it obsolete. Yeah, or un <laughs> unconsequential or remove it from, from, you know, from what Americanism is. 
And, and it's not just to blame Barack Obama because I think the president represents what's going on isn't so much the agenda. But there was this idea, this social program. What do you call it? Social engineering. Social engineering. Yeah. yeah. That happened. Well, he... So so that's what I'm seeing is it's because you brought it up a couple of times, ethics and moral. And, of course, you're a philosophy professor. And I never thought of morality as – because I don't want people telling me what my morality should be, you know. But I think that's what's missing is an, an element of morality. But, and we've ceded, the, we've ceded morality to – you see, the problem is that, the yes, colonization, colonialism, slavery, the birth defect of this country, these were all egregious wrongs. Mm-hmm. But what we've done is we've completely identified ourselves constitutively with these wrongs instead of saying the West in general, not just – yeah. America, it's, it's Europe also, which, sure. is, which is just like a, a museum piece. The, Europe is dead. Yeah. I right? Know. Instead of saying, yes, we made these mistakes. <laughs> oh, there's right? another show there. Europe, well, we said it. We've said it a couple of times. Yeah. I mean, Europe is done. Instead of saying, yes, we made these mistakes. But, but guess what? We also, the West, gave birth to the Enlightenment movement. So right. the same West that colonized people also provided the emancipatory tools, yeah. the abolition, abolitionist movement, to, to, to free these people. So the West ironically provided the very tools for emancipation. Instead of saying and seizing, keeping reign of the language of morality, yeah. gave it in the name of, to these 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 you know, these post-colonialists and these decol- de- decolonial students, and said, "You take the language of morality. We're so ashamed of ourselves yeah. that we have given up morality altogether." Yeah. Instead of retaining the language of morality and said, "You know what? We you are the, you the people who think that you're oppressed." You're the legatees. We bequeath to you the very language of emancipation that freed you. We, f- we actually freed you. Yeah. The abolitionist movement in William, Wil- William Wilberforce in England, yeah. the great, great abolitionist, yeah. well, is an heir to the, of the, of the um, Enlightenment movement. Right? But the West, it's not just a problem of America. It's a problem of the West. They yeah. become apologists for their greatness. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, and you see it in, in the UK. Like, oh, my God. But, you know, it, it, oh, my God, there's so much there. So without slavery, without the various problems and birth defects, as you would call it, there can be no breakthrough. There can be no enlightenment. You need that error for the correction, and out of the correction comes this new realm of possibility. That's right. And, and that's, just, that's just the system of overcoming failures. And, and for some reason, we have gotten to be – there, there's such a lack, so much fear about a failure or a breakdown that we spend all our time trying to avoid it as opposed to engaging with it and overcoming it. Right. And that's why, you know, again, the book, and I just got it now, the book, We Have Overcome, it's actually engaging with those things and taking them hand to hand. And that is fundamentally what masculinity is about. And as men, we have abdicated this because we just got tired of getting punched in the balls. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that's what's happened. It's actually ball pain fatigue. Well, the, you know? the, the other aspect of it is, is that in a certain sense, America is the, um, the crucible in which the individual may blossom fully. Yeah. And one of the aspects of the blossoming of an individual is making mistakes, making the correction, but not living from your mistakes. Right. And, um, yeah. and, and we're at a point now in our culture where we're now supposed, like you said, we're supposed to apologize yeah. for our success. Don't get me, you know, look, we've created massive, like Madeleine Albright, right? Remember the famous saying, 
she was asked by Leslie Stahl, so you, there were uh, 500,000 Iraqi children were uh, killed, uh, were, died from starvation as a result of the embargo against Iraq. Uh, was it worth it that you had the embargo? And she's like, oh, we think it was worth it. And it's like, you know, like, I guess what I'm saying is, is that there needs to be, we, it was actually wrong for us to do that. We ought not to have done it. And we need to look at ourselves and ask, what kind of country are we that we yeah. would do something like that, but then actually grow from that versus pretend like it never, in other words, there's this, there's a, I don't want, I don't know what the word is here, but there's a paradox, mm. you know, where well, I also where, think there, there you know, we accountability, have to, a paradox of accountability. But we also have to be realistic that we're not going to be perfect and there's going to be errors. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when there is, when it's going down the wrong track to have the, the awareness that, uh-oh, this isn't working out the way we want, cease that behavior as opposed to being right about it, you know? Yes, and I think the, what the, the, the what I see, and again, I may, I, may, I don't want to sound like I'm on the left here, but I really— and You are. You're a pinko. Yeah. You're a pinko. Here's the thing. Vietnam. We, we killed millions of civilians in Vietnam and Cambodia. Where is the accountability from the government that, in other words, our—, our I guess what I'm saying is, is that one way that I see for us to start to rid ourselves of exactly this terrible mechanism that's being foisted upon us is for men to actually have the conversation. Look, this happened. We need to account for this. Yeah. And we need to make sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, like Trump maybe is doing right now. Like he was, you know, I'm sure they tried to get him into Iran to get him involved in Iran. And he said, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not sending our guys over there. And I think there's some of that going on. At the same time, I'm worried that there's a vacuum that's being created in the world. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and without American leadership, yep. the way that Ronald Reagan assumed leadership when he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear those walls yep. down. He could say right. that because we were not beholden to, right. to Russia. We are so beholden yep. to China. We owe them so much money that we can't yep. defend those yep. poor those poor uh, uh, protesters Kong. in Hong Kong. Yeah, right. There's a, How about there's, that one, by there's the way? A, there's, wow. an, there's a vacuum in the world. And if we don't fill that vacuum... A nefarious power like Iran, mm-hmm. like China, yeah. or, Russia. Uh, or Russia is going to fill that vacuum. So I sure. want to see an America, a strong America with a strong moral voice that can say to Saudi Arabia, you are a, a nefarious medieval kingdom because we're not beholden to their oil. That can say to China, you have an egregious uh, human rights violation because- So we need God, to bring Jim Oberweiss in with him, right? God oh. bless us if China calls on the debt that we owe them. Yeah. Right. So America, in some says, in some sense, has relinquished its moral authority uh, by placing itself in uh, a compromising position with various p- powers in the world in a way that wasn't the case uh, in the in the post World War II era. Mm-hmm. And I and I and I, I I am for a strong America because we are a beacon of light in the world. Yeah. People, we put up. We're putting. We're attending. To put up walls to keep people out. Why? Because this is still a place where people can stake their aspirational identities. And Amer- I want to see an America that that can stand up proudly and not harangue and lecture the world, but by example, be a, a, a shining beacon of 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 moral of political morality, where we can say to China, you you cannot shut down freedom in Hong Kong. We can't do that. Or we can say to Iran, you know what? And we can say to European countries also, if you don't stop enriching their uranium uh, platform, Mm -hmm. we are going to punish you. We will punish you, and we can do so 
with our heads held high. Mm. America can't do that because we're just in a quagmire. We're just, we lack a coherent, consistently ethical foreign policy right now. In yeah. a broad level, what, uh, so the university system is but one tentacle or one finger on the hand of cultural destabilization or re-engineering of society. What are some of the other things you think are that are more uh, uh, concocted or, or, or planned or, you know, like what else do you see happening that's... Well, I want to say that the university is the transmission belt of all our cultural values. It starts in universities, wow. mm-hmm. right? The professoriates and the universities set the cultural standards mm-hmm. that then get conveyed like a on a transmission belt into culture. Everything that you see right. in the media, whether it's uh, NBC, CNBC, Rachel Maddow spewing her invectives, <laughs> uh, right? Where did she learn this stuff? She learned it from her college professors. This woman has a PhD in political science, by the yeah. way, yeah. right? So I think corporations that are subjected to like racial and ethnic sensitivity, workshops, uh, corporations that now have to display cultural sensitivity. Where where is this coming from? These are coming from graduates who have degrees in cultural psychology. Um, so I th- I trace everything back to the university. Yeah. Um, but I but I so uh, you know I, I see the media as the second the second tier in communicating some of these um, more nefarious and 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 and, and right. specious ideas. Um, and and as and as engaging in a kind of social engineering, which the universities themselves start. Um, what are they getting out of it? Power. Like what, what, I mean, outside of the generating their own economy of sorts, right? Because victimization, Mike and I have discussed on the show, victim, like current, their victimization is like its own currency. Yeah. Being a victim is like, it's like having credits that you can then spend. Cultural credits that you could spend, you know, being a victim, right? Well, you get an enormous sense of power because you get to play God. You get, you get to, you get to play. You get to re-socialize the sensibilities of people. You get to engage in a massive social engineering. We gotta, we gotta shut this down. We're hijacked. Forget it. Let's just hide it. Keep going. (laughs) We gotta go, Jason. Thank you so much. Please allow us to thank you for listening to this show, as we are only too aware that your support makes it possible. 